The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. from Washington, D.C. every Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. for an hour-long Generation Progress takeover. Check us out at genprogress.org or on Twitter at genprogress. Generation Progress Takeover of the Lefty Marshall Show. My name is Brent J. Cohen, and I'm your guest host today. Uh, we're going to be talking today, um, as we did last week, about coronavirus, um, the impact that it's having on communities across this country. Um, as we mentioned last week, uh, this host, this uh, show is being hosted remotely. We are uh, practicing social distancing um, based on public health guidance, as we know that's the best way for us to uh, really flatten the curve here and slow the spread of coronavirus and COVID-19 across the country. Uh, also want to recognize that not everybody has the the luxury or the privilege or the ability to uh, socially distance right now. And so want to want to give um, big thanks to all the folks out there, uh, medical workers, people who work in hospitals uh, but are not doctors, doctors, nurses, uh, our sanitation workers, delivery people, um, folks working at uh, grocery stores and stocking the shelves to make sure that uh, we have what it is that we need to be able to survive day to day. So a huge thanks to everyone out there who doesn't have the luxury or the privilege of working from home and are continuing to go in day after day and make sure that we're in a position uh, you know, to continue to, um, to get through this together. So big thanks to all of you. Um, there is another group of uh, people out there that doesn't have the luxury or privilege of socially distancing either. And it's not because they're going into work every day. It's because they're incarcerated uh, day to day. And we have right now 43,000 children, 43,000 young people, youth, children, uh, behind bars across this country. And we have another 2.2 million adults who are behind bars in this country in local jails, state prisons and uh, federal prisons. Uh, that doesn't even, that, those numbers don't include uh, the people who we have in detention immigration right now, uh, immigration detention, excuse me, but 2.2 million people in local jails, state prisons, federal prisons, plus another 43,000 children uh, who are behind bars today. And these are folks who we know in the best of circumstances are oftentimes living in unsanitary conditions because jails and prisons and youth facilities are no places that anybody should be forced to live. And right now, today, we know that's particularly true with the spread of coronavirus. So joining us today, and so glad to have folks on the show with us, uh, joining us first is Deanna Hoskins, president and CEO 
of Just Leadership USA. Deanna, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Brian. Absolutely. And we are also joined by uh, Jared O'Brien, an organizer with Youth Justice Coalition in Los Angeles. Jared, thanks for being with us. Thanks for being with us. Absolutely. So, um, Deanna, I'm going to turn to you uh, first, if that's all right. And I want to just really open it up by, uh, if you could just share with us a bit about what Just Leadership USA is, the work that you all do, um, and and how it's relevant to the conversation we're having here today. Thanks, Grant. So, Just Leadership was founded in 2014 um, as an organization to focus on the leadership development of formerly incarcerated, directly impacted individuals to provide them with the tools, resources to elevate, educate, and empower their voices so that they can drive policy change, which is why we're kind of having this conversation today is in relation to conditions of confinement, policies around um, sentencing guidelines, bail reform, pretrial services of that. Awesome. Being a formerly incarcerated individual, who was impacted and um, challenged with some of the barriers that were uh, within policy that prevented me from becoming a self-sufficient individual and starting to challenge those policies around housing, employment, access to benefits, and finding out that there was room to work with individuals who were in elected positions to actually start changing some of those policies so individuals could be self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Deanna. And, and- I mean, you know, the work that you all are doing at Just Leadership is so incredibly important uh, at all times of the year, and I think even heightened <clears throat> importance right now. Um, Jared, uh, if you could uh, give us an overview of the mission of the Youth Justice Coalition and, and just a little bit about what your work looks like as an organizer with the organization. Yeah, so um, the Youth Justice Coalition was founded in 2003. Um, and we're a members-led, youth-led, and formerly incarcerated people-led organization that works to dismantle the juvenile injustice system um, and also push out and deportation um, and 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 um, over-policing in underserved communities, you know. Um, my work at the Youth Justice Coalition, um, I, I'm, a, I'm a direct action organizer, so we do everything from um, organizing actions and whatever that contends of, if it's from setting up the room or anything that goes from there all the way up to um, helping to write our own policies and, and come up with our own demands. Um, we help to write and lobby for legislation that we come up with every year across the state of California and um, policies at the local level. Um, most of the stuff that we do is youth-led. Most of our organizers is youth-led and have been system-involved in some type of way, either been pushed out of school or been locked up in um, halls and camps and know what it feels like to, to, to face the hands of the criminal justice system and the juvenile justice system firsthand. So um, I'm, I'm just one of the organizers there. We have um, a couple other organizers that do the same work that we do and just kind of give um, the use of opportunity to enhance the voice that, you know, um, we have. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, Jared. Such important work. And, and 
We're going to talk a little bit more about some of what the Youth Justice Coalition is calling for right now in terms of the young people who are in uh, custody with L.A. County probation and in, in juvenile justice facilities. But we're going to come to that in just a minute. Before we before we jump over there, Deanna, I'm, we've got about two minutes before we go to break. If you could share with us just we're in this middle of a, of a, a global pandemic, a pandemic here in the United States that we haven't experienced in the last century um, and if just at a high level to sort of uh, provide, I think, um, almost like the, the foundation for this conversation, why are incarcerated people uniquely threatened by this situation and by coronavirus? Well, we know people who are incarcerated are particularly at risk because in jails and prisons across this country, the term social distance does not exist. Um, by the nature of mass incarceration, they're always in close proximity to each other. We know jails and prisons are over capacity of what they were built. So traditionally, even spaces that were built with single cells are now double and in some cases triple. So that notion of social distancing, having access to some of the things that the CDC has determined as the, having the ability to kill this virus are actually contrabands in those spaces. So it's really important to have this conversation um, along with the inadequate health care prior to this virus, now we have individuals who are aging, who have health conditions such as respiratory illness, um, cancer, HIV, actually at a higher risk and not being tested or not being even included in the conversations that governors are having while they're talking about protecting their citizens is as if that population is out of sight, out of mind, and still in the second-class citizen category. Mm-hmm. And and I'll and I will just add to that. That is uh, such incredible, I think, insight into into why people who are incarcerated are at risk. And the reality is, I know there's some folks out there who are going to say, "Well, they're inside." And the reality is, well, we we need to break that down in about 17 different ways. But beyond that, right. people are going in and out of those facilities every single day. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's coming in and it's going out. So when we come back. From this break, we're going to talk more with Deanna and Jared about what the situation is, how we can stop the spread of coronavirus inside youth justice facilities, inside jails, inside prisons. When we come back right after this. Life, liberty and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Brent J. Cohen, and I'm joined by my other co-host. Edwin Theogene. Hello. So thanks for thanks for coming back with us. We're talking now about the uh, potential impact here of coronavirus and the potential spread of coronavirus and COVID-19 through America's uh, youth facilities, youth jails, detention facilities, local jails, and uh, state and federal prisons. And so uh, we're glad to have joining us Deanna Hoskins, President and CEO of Just Leadership USA. Thanks for coming back with us, Deanna. Thank you. And Jared O'Brien and Anthony Robles, organizers with the Youth Justice Coalition from Los Angeles. Thanks for being with us, Jared and Anthony. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Great. Um, We're just going to jump right back into conversation. Uh, As Most of us know hundreds of cases of COVID-19 have already been confirmed among people who are being incarcerated at local, state, and federal correctional facilities. 
So clearly people will need to act fast. Uh, Deanna, what does Just Leadership USA recommend that local, state, and federal authorities do to prevent this from getting any worse? So thank you for that question. That's an awesome question. One of the things that we're starting to see is advocates across the country are calling for the mass release of individuals and different things. And there is, um, we do believe people need to be released. We think people who are susceptible, anyone held on technical violations, meaning they didn't commit a new crime, it possibly was a quality of life issue, such as selling a drug test, not showing up for a curfew, um, individuals who are actually pre-trial, who, are, who have the inability to pay their bonds should not be held, people over 50, pregnant women, people with underlying health conditions, mental illness, addiction services um, that are needed for addiction services, but also um, taking a look at some of those things that were just stockpiling on governors, parole, commissioners' death. Everyone that's eligible for parole should be massively released because they're already eligible. It's just a backlog in the system where they haven't acted. Um, But what are some of the things people can do outside of releasing the vulnerable people over 50 pregnant women, actually releasing those who are eligible for parole? There are actually things that can take place with inside Department of Corrections, such as remove sanitizer off of the contraband list. If CDC is saying a percentage of alcohol kills this germ, um, this virus, we should be making sure if it's being told to us to wash our hands constantly, to use sanitizer on the outside, they should have access to sanitizer on the inside as well. But right now, sanitizer is on a contraband list across DLCs across this country. Having access to antibacterial soap, having access to showers, um, actually, Creating, you know, and I was thinking, um, having been formerly incarcerated, but also having worked in the Department of Corrections, I had to start thinking, if I was still in that situation as a unit manager, what would I do? And one of the things is, while social distancing is not possible inside the Department of Corrections, if we're saying that we should shelter in place for 14 days or we should be quarantined if we've even been suspected of being exposed, You can create one unit that becomes the quarantine unit where those individuals are in a unit together and not contaminating the rest of the camp. So if you have 2,500 people on the whole campus of the correctional facility and you have units that actually house two to three, sometimes cases, 400 individuals, why can't you create quarantine units for those individuals that don't fall into those categories to be released? But also one of the things we do in this country, we don't evaluate or take a look at people or even follow research. If research says people age out of crime and a person has been incarcerated for decades and they committed this crime when they were a youth, they are not who they were then. There's the institutional record that can determine if there's been any write-ups or any behavior that is in any type of violation, but we don't have a system that even goes back and look at you. We have a system that will sentence a 17-year-old to 50 years and never look at him again because we threw him away. When in fact, that person is not that same person and we don't think people should be thrown away if we're actually saying people deserve a second chance. And I think this is a perfect time for this conversation because today is April 1st, which is actually National Second Chance Month. So are we going to act and call for actions for people to really have a second chance? 
You know, Deanna, I, I love the fact that you frame this from the perspective of this is good policy anyway, right? We we, right. we should be, folks should be, we are way over incarcerated in this country, and this is Second Chance Month beginning April 1st, and folks should be going home. Um, not yeah. just today and not just because of coronavirus, but because they don't need to be incarcerated, period. The research doesn't back it up. The research says, as, as you said quite clearly, um, the the sort of people age out of crime, what, what happened at 18 or 20 or even 23 is not the way that somebody responds at 29 or 30 or 35 and certainly not at 63. And so we should be moving down this path anyway. Uh, this isn't a conversation that's just starting now. For some people, it's just coming into the mainstream for them because it's in the context of coronavirus. But this is a conversation that's been had for a long time about what works and what doesn't work in criminal justice policy and what that actually looks like. And now there's an added incentive for us to move forward because we know if we don't move forward, coronavirus and COVID-19, given how fast this spreads, is going to spread like wildfire through these facilities. And what was already an excessive sentence in many cases of 10, 20, or 25 years is going to be a sentence to death, which we know is right. unconstitutional and excessive to the, to the millionth degree. But Brent, so, I, I want to add on that too. Can you imagine the mental torture to know you're inside a facility and all you're hearing from the news or around is about a virus that has the potential to cause death and you're in a facility that is doing no precautionary actions to prevent you from dying? And you're starting to hear that this um, virus is inside the facility, but there is no precaution being taken place. Can you imagine the trauma of the fear that's being enticed? The trauma and the torture. And the torture of it. It's almost like being in a burning building screaming. So, Deanna, when we come back, I want to talk with you more about the letter that was released today that you and Anthony both signed on to. And Anthony and Jared want to talk more about the work that you all are doing there and the, the 30 demands that the Youth Justice Coalition came out with. So we'll be right back after this break. Hello, and welcome back to the, Le- the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Edwith Theogene. And I'm Brent J. Cohen. Um, this week, we are talking about the... This week, we're hosting... Sorry, I'm just messing up. But welcome back to our show. Today, we are joined by some really amazing people to talk about another population of folks who don't have the option of protecting themselves from the pandemic that is affecting all of us. We are talking about people who are currently incarcerated. We are joined by Anthony Robles and Jared O'Brien, organizers with the Youth Justice Coalition in Los Angeles. Hello, Anthony and Jared. Hello. Hey, thanks for having us. Thank you. And we are also joined by Deanna Hoskins, the president and CEO of Just Leadership USA. Hello. Hi. So welcome back. Um, I'd like to start off with Anthony and Jared. Can you give us, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the recent list of demands that was published uh, by Youth Justice Coalition? Um, It's a list of demands where you joined over 30 prominent California and Los Angeles officials. including California Governor Gavin Newsom. What was this letter specifically calling for and how did you arrive at these demands? Um, so it was actually, um, we, we signed on about 60 to 70 community-based organizations across um, 
Los Angeles County and across California. But um, I'm, I'm not sure if Governor Newsom had signed on. It did go to his, the demands was actually to send to Governor Newsom, but he didn't sign on. Um, but the demands was actually, um, the demands we came up with, being that YJC is a youth-led and um, um, led by people who are system-involved, um, when this pandemic hit, one of the first things we started thinking about are those who are most vulnerable in this situation. Um, we see a lot of people um, out there and um, worrying about everything that, that's happening, but then we hear a little bit, we, we only hear a little bit when it comes to um, people having concerns about those who are most vulnerable in this situation, which would be those who are incarcerated. Um, the reason we say that is because those who are incarcerated, um, it's proven that diseases and viruses spread faster in the, um, in the, in the, um, the, while you're incarcerated in the halls, the camps, the jails, the prison, and stuff like that, it, it has a higher rate of spreading in there than actually in out, outside in society. So we came up with some demands, and uh, you know, one of the one of the things we're asking for is to to release all youths um, who are locked up right now on a um, misdemeanor, a probation violation, and a 707A charge. And for the youth who are locked up for more serious crimes and are on 707B charges, we're asking that um, that they they have the chance to go in front of a judge and um, have the opportunity to be assessed and still have the opportunity to be released, um, depending on what the judge um, decides. But we'll still have that opportunity to see someone. Um, and then the next thing that we um, we did a press conference in front of Central Juvenile Hall here in Los Angeles County. Um, and we spoke to some of the officials that are working um, in, in the halls, and they told us that our programming has been shut down um, and and visits has been canceled. So with this, um, me personally, I've been in the juvenile hall before. I know what it is to, to, be, to be in there away from your family and away from your loved ones. Um, so one of the other demands that we're pushing for is if, if they can't have um, visits, at least have unlimited phone calls, you know, to be able to to um to talk to their family because they already can't see them. Um, from what we've heard from family members is that some of the people um in the halls and the camps didn't even know about the coronavirus from the guards. The guards didn't tell them or the probation staff didn't tell them anything about um what's happening on outside. They had to hear from their parents. Um, they usually get one call per week, but we uh, um. Because of advocacy and people pushing, they they gave they're giving them two calls now because of not having um visits. But we're saying that two calls isn't enough. You know, you're already away from your loved ones, away from everything, and then on top of that, there's a a pandemic that could be deadly, um and is deadly, um that that's happening in your society and that could hit where that could hit the juvenile halls and the camps. Um, me, I could talk about when I was in there, they, the, it was totally unsanitary. There was, like, blood on the floor. You have to pee in the same um, cell that you sleep in, um, like, you know, stuff like this. So we came up with these demands around what we know that people from our organization that has been in there and people from um, family members from our organization um, calling us and giving us concerns of what's actually happening there. And Anthony could give you a little bit more about some of the other demands that we're pushing for.
Yeah, so like Jared said, we're calling for the immediate release of people that are um, in juvenile housing camps for um, misdemeanor and low-level felonies and bench warrants and probation violations, technical probation violations, and then the, the petitioning the courts to have a hearing for um, young people who are incarcerated on 707B charges, um, which are you know the more serious ones, but having a chance to come out. Um, and then for the, there's a follow-up letter that um, that that was just released with some partners from Loyola Law School's um, uh, Juvenile Law and Policy Clinic around for the youth who will remain in um, these facilities that they still get access to quality education and that the LA County Office of Education and Probation um, that they implement um, uh, health safety protocols and health protocols and precautions, but also still um, having making sure that youth are getting quality um, education and access to their um, IEPs or individual educational plans and their necessary counseling and therapy and stuff that they need. Um, this is just at a minimum that they should still be continuing to get um, access to all this um, despite the, the COVID-19 situation. Um, so they should be partnering with the county's like health agency to implement best practices on how to um, prevent the spread of this disease while also providing these services. Yeah. So first of all, just thanks for the work that you all are doing and bringing attention to this. I think um, particularly when it comes to young people being locked up right now, that's a part of the conversation that is even further behind in the national narrative than the uh, recognition that we need to let adults out of jails and prisons. And, and obviously letting young people out and releasing young people, making sure that they're safe and able to go, get home and be protected um, is just as important here. And so really appreciate the work that your organization is doing to bring attention to this matter. Um, and I know you've, you've gotten some good press on this as well, making sure that folks are aware, hey, we've got young people who are behind bars right now in Los Angeles County. Uh, and, they, and they are living in unsanitary conditions, 365, you know, 365 days a year, and it is particularly troubling today. Um, one of the things, and I, Anthony and Jared, you both sort of spoke to it as you were talking, and Deanna, you talked about this a little bit before, the importance of formerly and currently incarcerated people and loved ones um, really sort of making the demands and, and having the expertise here, having gone through this experience, to say, what is it that we need um, that we need for people who are currently incarcerated? What, what are the steps that we need to take? And at Generation Progress, we've, we've uh, really benefited from and are grateful for your leadership on this. We have a tool out there now that folks can go to genprogress.org, and it is the first thing that pops up on our homepage where you can take action to send a letter to your governor based on the type of demands that Deanna and Anthony have talked about here in terms of um, making sure that all kids are, are released unless there is some very specific reason why a particular youth poses a public safety risk at this time, um, and that, uh, you know, people who are in jails and prisons across the country, uh, particularly those who are elderly or immunocompromised, they've diabetes or asthma or some other um, health condition that puts them at increased risk, have opportunities to be released, um, and so on and so forth, and that once the facility is depopulated, or not even once, but immediately, that there's sanitation processes that go into effect immediately, hand sanitizer being available. And Deanna, the, the, the work that you have done, and, and, and Anthony and, and Jared and others, really informed the work that we did at Generation Progress um, and tried to serve as a tool to help amplify those demands. But there's a letter that came out, a public statement that came out today, and Deanna, both you and Anthony are signatories on it. 
that really, uh, it, it seems like one of the main efforts is making sure that folks are not speaking for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people, but speaking with and giving the microphone to uh, formerly and currently incarcerated folks and loved ones. So Deanna, if you could just talk a bit about the importance of that statement that came out today. Thanks, Brent. So one of the things um, that we do, our main focus at Just Leadership is elevating our voices of formerly incarcerated, directly impacted individuals to actually be able to speak for ourselves. Um, no, traditionally, when people talk about criminal justice, reentry efforts, what needs to be done, what type of education program, people never spoke to us as humans. They always spoke for us. And which has gotten us down this lane, you know, in the beginning of reentry work, it was all they need is a job without realizing we didn't even have our basic human needs met. And it wasn't until people started speaking to us who had been impacted and actually coming to us as the experts because we have lived this life to actually identify what some of those needs that we need. Yeah, we do need a job, but I'm not going to show up for work if I don't have a place to live. So this letter, this statement that came out was saying, hey, we will speak for ourselves. And what you'll see, even in the demands, they're traditionally not the same demands that everybody else. It's a very unique demand about, we understand that some people are going to remain in, in the um, facility. But even for those people who remain, they need to be treated with human dignity. And what are some of the things you can do to stop the spread of this virus? What are some of the things they should have access to that actually um, – codifies their human dignity that they're just not there to die and suffer from this virus. So this letter was really about we're in a time where everyone else has been speaking for us. The criminal justice movement has been celebritized. Even when individuals are utilized as the person or the face of criminal justice, they're still not speaking to us because their experience is only one experience and you have to come to the whole. So the people, sometimes the person who's the face of criminal justice can be a woman who's pregnant and had to deliver in prison and be shackled to a bed. Or as my co-host on this call, they're not youth. They haven't experienced being in the system as a youth and being detached from their family and the trauma that goes along with that. But you're still missing the aspect of it when you utilize certain individuals in a celebratory manner, when it's individuals across this country, over 70 million individuals have been impacted by the criminal justice system in some aspect, and we are the people you need to speak to. So this letter was explicitly saying, we appreciate everything everyone has done. We appreciate everything everyone has spoken about, but we can speak for ourselves, and this letter was us. So you have 165 organizations that either represent being founded and ran by formerly or directly impacted people or being an organization that represents us with over 350 directly impacted individuals signed on to it. We're tired of other people speaking for us because they truly don't understand our trauma and our experience and how we come out of this on the other side. Thanks, Deanna. Um, so when we come back, we want to hear more about the work that's happening in this space, um, things that the positive progress that's happened so far and what more needs to happen. And we also want to share with the folks where they can get those types of resources, like the statement we just talked about and the demand letter that came out of Youth Justice Coalition. When we come back, we'll talk more about this. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. 
Welcome back to the Generations Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Brent J. Cohen. And I'm joined by my other co-host, Edwith. Edwith. There we go, Edwith. And we're talking today about uh, uh, the spread, how we stop the spread of COVID-19 and youth facilities, jails, prisons across this country. And we're joined by two, by three guests, excuse me, Deanna Hoskins, President and CEO of Just Leadership USA, and uh, Anthony Robles and Jared O'Brien from the Youth Justice Coalition in Los Angeles. So um, just coming right back into it and, and fully jumping here, um, Anthony, yesterday, California announced that it would release 3,500 incarcerated people, uh, which is uh, in re- releasing 3,500 people early to help slow the spread of the virus. What do you think of this plan and, and what do you think the state should do next? Um, you know, I think it's a good start. Um, 3,500 people in a prison system that has about 120,000 or whatever, you know, is um, kind of a drop in the bucket. But um, it's a good start. I just want to know how many young people are being released from DJJ, the Department of Juvenile Justice, which just got a new name. Um, but the state youth prison system, I don't know if any young people are included in this 3,500. It's also for people with um, nonviolent um, convictions and have less than 60 days left on their sentences. So I think this this needs to be expanded even further to um, at least up to people that have a year left on their date. And I think people with um, serious and violent um, convictions are in the prison system should be um, individually uh, um assessed as well about their um, suitability to come home um, early and you know at least a minimum of one year left on the sentence if not even two because the because the existential danger that this um, virus presents is so deadly it's so contagious there's not a vaccine there's no curative treatment that this is gonna this could really really ravage um, the prison system and the jail systems for, and for all people incarcerated if this thing is not um, if proper um, containment measures aren't aren't enacted, which we know aren't being enacted, and from what we're hearing is that even in the the halls and camps right now in LA County, that they're they're still regular. They say that everything's shut down. But we're also hearing from family members who are speaking to their young people and and people that are inside that work inside are, are saying that um things are still going on as normal and there's no social distancing practices going on at all, and so. I think like health agencies really need to be allowed in to inspect and really monitor and, and um, make sure that these um, health precautions are really taken serious because if we leave probation and CDCR, you know, the Department of Corrections here in California and those agencies to do it, I don't think they're going to do it right. And they're for sure not going to do it, not going to have the safety and welfare um, of the people they guard, the people inside um, on the, the first thing on their mind. Thanks. Uh, Deanna, um, have any of the bill packages from Congress addressed the threats incarcerated people are facing thus far? Um, And if there were another package in the future, what do you think, what should we urge legislators to include? So one of the things I think that we all have to understand is even when there's language included in the bill, there are certain words that determine how it gets implemented. So traditionally, as with all um, Anything related to lease in a federal package, we got to remember the federal package only imp- only impacts the Federal Bureau of Prisons. 
it still does not impact the states where mass incarceration has really impacted. But also in that language, when it talks about DOJ, um, uh, AG Barr stated that individuals should be released or evaluated for release, it was only a memo. He still left the discretion to the the Bureau of Prisons director to make that determination of who's rehabilitated, who's at risk. There was no outright directive in any of that language that said you will utilize compassionate release for individuals who are suffering with certain types of illness. You will take the temperature of every individual every day or staff coming in and out. There were no type of directives. There were only, it only served as a memo, and that is a difference on a federal level. But the public seems to think that anything that's included in a federal bill has to become the way that the Bureau of Prisons operate, and that's not true. So yes, if something comes out of the federal government again, related to incarcerated individuals, it, it needs to be a directive that is actually implemented in the law and not a memo and a suggestion, which leads it up to the individuals who run the facilities to determine. Um, and that's kind of the manipulation that politicians have taken for years around criminal justice. Simple words determine how it's implemented, where it may be in the law, and that is just in the law, but it still leaves the discretion up to the facilities or the director of the BOP. So anything moving forward should actually be a directive coming from Congress and the president, a directive of what the prison system must do and not a suggestion of what they can do. That's right. And we need to see that leadership as a directive at the federal level and also coming from governors at the state level and from the county executive or the local sheriff or mayor, depending on your city or county at the local level. So, Deanna, uh, we're, we're coming down to time here. The website for Just Leadership USA is jousa.org. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Awesome. And people can go there to learn more about the work we do and even connecting with some of our leaders in various states if they want to join some of those state level campaigns. Thank you. And you can find more about the Youth Justice Coalition at youthjusticela.org. That's youthjusticela.org. And as always, you can find us at genprogress.org. Again, that's genprogress.org. Go there, take action, tell your governor, your local elected official, it's time to protect the folks who are behind bars. Thanks for joining us here on the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show.